On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dong Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dong group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dong's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home's Special Election 44 series. Join co-host Stefania Secha from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness and Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door as they interview various experts about the critical election issues related to Canada's housing and homelessness crises. Be informed when you head to the polls. Now enjoy this special election episode of On The Way Home. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door and joining me as always is the fabulous Stefania from CAEH. Steph, how are you doing? I'm good, Michael. Thank you so much. Again, thank you for my daily affirmation. It is always nice to start my day with a compliment. Um, I'm good. Just busy election. Um, really busy with the vote housing campaign. Very excited that we have someone on from the vote housing campaign today. But uh, yeah, good. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, I think that people always talk about, you know, break time during the summer where things slow down, but that hasn't uh, seemed to happen this year. And it probably never does. I think that's just maybe that's imaginary, you know, but in a good way, in a good way, there's lots going on. We have the election right now, which is, uh, you know, so interesting and, and uh, brings another layer to that. And, you know, this is why we're doing this series. And, and you've, you've lined up a great, uh, great panel of guests. Can you tell me uh, a little bit about them? Absolutely. So excited to introduce all the experts we have on the call today. I will start with uh, Leilani Farha, is the former UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing and Global Director of The Shift. Her work is animated by the principle that housing is a social good, not a commodity. Leilani has helped develop global human rights standards on the right to housing, including through her topical reports on homelessness, the financialization of housing, informal settlements, rights-based housing strategies, and the first UN guidelines for the implementation of the right to housing. She is also the central character in the amazing documentary push regarding the financialization of housing. Please watch it if you have not yet. I'd also like to introduce a partner of mine in crime right now with the Vote Housing Campaign, Zane Velji. He is partner and vice president of strategy at Northweather, a digital first agency that helps purpose-driven businesses and nonprofits to market, storytell, advocate, and motivate action. Zane is also a regular political commentator who appears weekly on CBC radio and television. In addition, Zane serves on the board of the Wine. MCA Calgary and the Canadian Children's Book Center. And in 2017, he served as the campaign manager for Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi's successful election bid. 
And last but certainly not least, we also have Eric Weissman, PhD, has been studying homelessness, housing, and social policy in Canadian and U.S. cities since 1999. Having recovered from the lived experience of episodic homelessness and addictions over 23 years ago, he is well familiar with the difficulty people have when trying to find and keep safe and stable housing, which is essential to addressing other health concerns. In addition to these interests, in 2018, Dr. Weissman became principal investigator on a multi-sided study of post-secondary student homelessness across Canada. Just a huge and amazing slot of guests today. Everyone, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for, thanks for having me. You know, I, I don't know, do I have to say uh, Eric PhD every time I address Eric? <laughs> no? Or is that just, just tell me Dr. Wiseman, you'll make my mother happy. <laughs> you also have okay. to say, you also have to say Zane Velge Bachelor of Arts and my 3.1 GPA after you say my name. <laughs> I just want you to know that that is also a precursor to what I ask for. I also right got a 27 inch brown trail once, just, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, all of you are well known to many of our listeners, uh, but for those who might not or might be new to the sector, can each of you talk a little bit about uh, what you're working on currently? We'll start with Eric, PhD, and then we'll go <laughs> with Lalani and finally Zane. Uh, you've totally stripped me of any guards I have because you've made me laugh twice. Uh, well, actually, it's, thanks for having me. I love, uh, I love this podcast series, and I really appreciate the work that you've been doing. Um, I follow it very closely on social media, so you should pat yourself on the back if you still have that muscular facility left, if you can still stretch to do that. Um, currently, it's interesting, the uh, post-secondary student homelessness research we started in 2016 and have been doing in small bits has finally achieved some national funding. So we actually have a three-year plan now and we're reaching out to about 20 different sites across the country to look at, um, to engage students uh, in working with each other to uh, look at the barriers they've experienced to, um, to successful university ed or, or post-secondary education. Um, and largely in terms of housing precarity and uh, and um, it's really a student-driven project, but the idea is not just to look at the numbers, but to understand what the barriers look like, what the, their solutions would look like, and then to work with administrators from all the different post-secondary institutions to develop these programs. And then the other research that I've been working on recently is on um, frontline worker burnout and post-traumatic stress in I was working on the Maritimes, but this was a study done by Jeanette Wagemaker Schiff at UCalvary. And we found some astonishing numbers. Um, for example, over close to 60% of frontline workers prior to COVID had experienced some degree of, of stress, but it wasn't the kind of stress we would call post-traumatic stress. But after COVID, over, over that amount have experienced what we would define as clinical post-traumatic stress disorder. So really interesting work being done across the nation in different areas. Do you want me to jump in here now, well, Michael? Absolutely, thank you. <laughs> First of all, thanks for inviting me uh, to today's podcast. It's uh, super fun to be in conversation about the election that is facing people across this country. Um, and so interesting to see housing front and center in this election, but we'll get to that. In terms of stuff I've been working on, um, well, you know, I feel like all I do is talk, 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 talk. I get asked to talk a lot. I'm so surprised. Uh, so I've been talking a lot. 
about in particular um, this area that is still underexplored around the what I call the financialization of housing. So where housing is being gobbled up in, um, by big pension funds, private equity firms, asset management firms, and uh, really as a form of kind of speculation and, to, and driving the cost of housing up. It's not just happening in Canada, but it very much is. Uh, it's happening around the world. And so I get asked to talk about that a lot, which is good because it means people are starting to cotton on to the fact that this is a major issue having a huge impact um, on the housing landscape globally. Domestically in Canada, I've been doing some super interesting work um, or in particular around homeless encampments, which as we all know, have been springing up. Uh, they existed pre-pandemic, but they have really been on the rise uh, since the pandemic. So people living in tents in parks. And I've been uh, working in particular with the city of Toronto, not with them exactly, <laughs> trying to urge the city of Toronto to do better on this file. Um, but also um, now it's just become a huge issue across the country. So trying to get city governments to understand that um, there is a human rights way to engage people living in homelessness and uh, people living in encampments. So big piece of work. And in fact, we're going to migrate that work south. Um, so we now at The Shift, which is uh, where I'm the, uh, the director, um, we have a project to kind of take some work I've done on homeless encampments and human rights and export it to the U.S. and start working with some cities there. So super exciting. Yeah, and from my perspective, I'll just jump in here. First of all, thank you so much for for having me, especially with this uh, this cabal of esteemed guests. So this is going to be a lot of fun. As the guy who's not the domain expert in this in this particular area, what I will say is that for me, my my focus has been on advocacy. It's been on trying to un both understand and promote the fact that for a functioning democracy, uh, the voices of everyday people, quote unquote, uh, is not just a requirement, but is also uh, a, a vote getter, a mobilizer, a necessity, uh, and frankly, a real ripe opportunity. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing through my firm at Northweather through with my business partners and colleagues has been around, you know, and not to be too, uh, you know, loud about it in the sense, but it's about power building. How do organizations, how do movements build power through their voice, through their capacity, through their time? Uh, in this case, when we talk about vote housing, we'll talk about through their votes, right? How do you move public opinion through a parade, a parade of people uh, disparate, uh, different uh, from all walks of life? Uh, how do you use that and accumulate that towards being power in a political sense? And, and so a lot of the work that we've been focusing on is about helping to storytell around that, helping to market around that, certainly helping to shape that, but really is an exercise in saying that uh, everyday citizen involvement in democracy uh, doesn't need to be this scary thing. It doesn't have to be this high bar exercise. It doesn't have to be this noxious, vitriolic political uh, landscape that we have seen. But in fact, it is something exciting 
exciting, something accessible, and frankly, something necessary that allows sectors, individuals, and organizations to retain and once again, shift the power uh, in our democracy back to folks. And that's what advocacy is to me at the end of the day. So I've been focusing a lot on that. I know a lot of that might sound abstract or esoteric, so I hope to get into it a bit more from a tactical perspective, but we've been kind of focusing a lot of our energy and efforts in, in that domain. Yeah, absolutely. And Zane, it's interesting too, because, you know, as, as we've been working on the vote housing campaign, we've we've talked about sort of this burnout that everyone's been feeling and how we're not seeing that momentum building as much as we have. Not to say that it hasn't been successful and we've seen movement mm. and housing's been front and center this election, but, you know, just, just kind of building on what you were just saying, you know, getting engaged in politics is so critical. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. I, I look at politics as a gateway and many people feel like, you know, politics is, is interpreted through the lens of jersey colors, right? You wear a particular jersey, uh, it's a colored a certain way, and then you stick with that tribe. And I think politics is a means or a uh, an, an opportunity to create better community. And if you look at it through that lens and through the lens I just mentioned around shifting power, then what I think is is it you know, changes is a we can lower the bar and b we can actually ensure that folks that that may not have engaged kind of look at politics as an opportunity to engage. We talk often on the vote housing campaign about how policy got us to this position. Choices Choices that were made by our elected representatives got us to the situation of mass homelessness and housing precarity in this country. There is no doubt about that. And the same sort of applies now. We've got a choice in this moment. If we put enough pressure on the parties, if we ensure that we are loud enough, that we're you know uh, large enough, uh, that we're persuasive enough, uh, and that we've got a parade of, of folks from across the country to form our coalition, that's saying the different choices can be made. And, and that's exactly the, the opportunity here. Everything that we are trying to do, the videos, the marketing, the tactics, the door knocking, the reach out to your friends, the annoying emails that you get sent, the text messages, all of it is in service of two things. Number one, having individual people in the confines of a campaign feel like there's a ladder for them to keep doing more and contributing more and feeling more empowered about their personal place in the political sort of uh, zeitgeist. And secondly, it's to showcase that there is a group of engaged, committed supporters to their friends, to their families, and, and to, to media and to political parties, that we have got a, a loud, growing, engaged base of people who want this. We don't speak for a small special interest. We speak for something, as our Nanos polling has shown, that some 80% of Canadians are in support of, that some 70% of Canadians think is urgent when we talk about ending homelessness in this country. So our whole perspective on politics is politics and policy choices got us here, to, in order for us to change that, we need to build an undeniable parade of people that, that are engaged, that are mobilized, and that are representative of the majority view so that no matter which political party wins this election, frankly, let me be crass, they have to go through vote housing. They have to go through this coalition in order to, or they're going to answer to it one way or another, right? Either work with it or answer to it uh, when, when they are instilling and implementing their policies related to homelessness and housing in this country. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Zane. And I, I kind of want to shift gears over to you, Leilani, because, you know, as we talk about vote housing and the work there to make housing an election issue, I really think you've been really critical uh, during this election since the writ has dropped and the interviews you've done and all the, as you joked, talking and talking and talking that you've done. I think you're also a really critical reason why we've seen this issue become front and center and see that legitimacy and even financialization um, getting mentioned in, in the liberal platform, I believe. So, so, you know, as we say that, as we're seeing housing and its various forms be mentioned, financialization, you know, I'd love to ask you um, how different you think things would look if the human right to housing was just as front, to front and center. Yeah, it's a really good question. It actually does dovetail with what Zane was just talking about in a really um, fundamental way. I really loved the end of what Zane was saying, where he's saying, you know, the vote housing as a coalition is should be such that whatever government is elected, they are accountable to those in vote housing. And it, of course, they knows that that would extend beyond vote housing. Of course, but yeah. that is so fundamental to a human rights approach, which is to take seriously the lived experience of people who are underhoused or not housed at all or precariously housed. That's fundamental to a human rights approach. And what you don't really see in any of the political platforms is a real reckoning with that. That's to begin with, right? So, um, and I'm hoping that the Vote Housing Coalition can help change that. I hope um, the work that I'm doing and, and the research work of Eric and others like Eric, you know, are doing will we'll start getting governments to be accountable to the people. And that's fundamental to human rights. And it's what I really like about a human rights frame, which is, it's just so simple. It's like, who is accountable to whom? Human rights is an accountability framework. Who is accountable to whom? Governments are accountable to the people. There, simple. Um, but we'd be seeing lots of different things emerging if they were taking seriously or really understood what it means to govern from a place of human rights, what it means to do human rights, because it really is just, oh, it is a way of governing. Um, we would have seen far more emphasis and urgency around addressing homelessness, 100% for sure. I mean, you can't, homelessness is a prima facie violation of the right to housing. You can't slice it in any other way. Um, you can't view it any other way. Of course it is. And what you would have seen is a little more introspection and reflection by the political parties about the way in which, as Zane said, government policies and legislations have contributed and are creating homelessness on the streets and um, across Canada in, in various ways, places, and, and forms. So that's one. Um, you know, you do see the, the parties. I don't want to, I don't want to misspeak. I mean, all the parties mention homelessness. The conservatives think that the only people who are homeless are people with um, mental health issues and addictions and want to adopt a housing first approach. The NDP are saying, you know, something like, um, well, we want to end homelessness. They didn't exactly say by when, nor to my knowledge, did they say exactly how. Um, the, the liberals have said they too want to end homelessness. Again, not 100% clear how they're going to do that or by when. Um, it, this is urgent. I mean, if, if all of us on this call know what it is to live in homelessness and 
it is urgent, it is life and death, and there's a pandemic out there, and there's a fourth wave and a Delta variant and more variants to come. This is the most urgent issue that the parties have to address. So where is that urgency? You won't find it in the platforms. Um, but also things like um, financialization and the recognition that, um, that, we, that we live in a country that has been, um, that is, that who's, the housing system of which is very much constructed and based in a way that has allowed financialization to continue and that is resulting in the deprivation of human rights, in particular affordable housing for people across the country. You, there, there isn't, those connections are not being made. They say housing is a human right over here. If you're lucky, not all the platforms do. Some do, some don't. And then over here, they say, oh, we're going to tinker and we're going to do this a little bit here and a little bit there. I'd like to see more merging to say, okay, if housing is a human right, here's the people in need, here's what we have to do. And here's the policies and legislation, legislative reform and new legislative measures that we're going to put in place to address the crisis on our hands that is a human rights crisis. So there's some, there's some interesting stuff there. I don't want to say there isn't. I, I see some new grappling on the part of the parties. Yay. But no, not a human rights approach yet. Well, I think a lot of what you're talking about is around clarity, which thank you for that great segue. Uh, <laughs> now, welcome back, Eric. Um, and I'll tell you why it's a segue, because what Eric's going to talk about, just a, a little known fact, both you and Lelani are three-time uh, guests, so you're part of the three-time club. Uh, we'll teach you the secret knock at the end. It is nonprofit uh, charitable, so we don't actually receive anything. Uh, <laughs> but listen, Eric, you've been quite vocal in the media, uh, very much as of late, around the importance of definitions, and that's clarity. Uh, when it comes to terms like homelessness and affordable housing. I think a lot of these things are thrown around. Majority of people really don't know what that means or, or have assumptions. Why are definitions so important? Or why is it important that people define what exactly they mean, Eric, by affordable or homelessness? Well, so I, actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Um, of course. I, when I was working, so Lelani, I, I do a lot of work around encampments. I, I probably should have mentioned that. And I've been doing it since 1996. And um, I, my first study on encampments was Tent City in Toronto. And I made a bunch of films about it. And then I followed, I think you, I sent you the link once, I think. But one of the most interesting experiences I had was in, uh, in Portland, Oregon, where I did my field work for my dissertation and uh, between 2010 and, and got to know them very well and, and stayed stayed there for quite a while. And one of the things that I learned about that tiny home village and an emergency rest area, which was an encampment that was being developed, was that their very existence and their political support hinged on the language that was legally used to define them. In fact, Dignity Village emerged at the same time Tent City did, but they weren't able to legally be recognized. They weren't able to challenge their existence because no legal in Toronto, because there was no legal language for encampments. But in the states, every state has a has a constitutional provision for emergency campgrounds. And so they were able to enter a legal contract in 2002 with the state of Oregon, and they've been there for 20, 19 years, 20 years. Same with this camp that they started building in the middle of downtown as a political protest. They, one of the founders and some other disgruntled 
uh, individuals were sick of people dying on the streets in Portland, which has a very high percentage of individuals who are living and dying on the streets. And so they, they took over a piece of land and built a tent camp. And they said, just don't call us that because legally, if you call us that, it's illegal. So we, uh, they were taken to court and the court said, well, there is no language for you guys actually, because you're not letting people live there, you're letting people rest there. So we're gonna develop language. And they have, they developed new legal, legal language. They are known as an emergency rest area. And so they were allowed for five years to, to be, they saved thousands of lives. I, went, I spent a great deal of time down there. And they were in a great example of how encampments can actually be part of the process while people are waiting to find housing and not dying. It was just an amazing. So that's where I, I've started spending a lot of time on how, on how people conceptualize things like home and housing. And I think that one of the issues for me is, for example, uh, I read from time to time, I read uh, grant applications or articles and they refer to homelessness. And I'm left there making notes in the margin going, well, what homelessness? Uh, what, what do you mean? We have, and I make the note that we have a lot, a number of definitions available to us. So I, I, I personally use the Canadian Observatory of Homelessness's definition from 2012. I use Jesse Thistle's definition of Indigenous homelessness, um, and I use the youth definition. And so I think the reason we need to know this is because every when we say the word homelessness, most people visually go to this place where they're seeing some poor person who's stuck sleeping on a park bench in the middle of winter. And in fact, that's a that's the most tragic visualization of the problem, but it's not the largest problem. The, 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 real, the really, the most profound example of homelessness, if you accept the multi-tiered definition, is people who, are, who have no home place of their own, people who are hidden, hidden homelessness, people who are couch surfing, people who have to move from place to place. And one of the interesting things that we found doing our post-secondary student research initially and we're waiting for the results of 18,000 responses to find out what the numbers are now. But we found that, you know, as many as 80,000 Canadian students are experiencing either literal homelessness, meaning they're sleeping in their cars or they're sleeping outside or in the gymnasium, or they're, in, they're chronically housed poorly. So they're moving from basement to basement. Many of them are, are, are taking on roles in, in really dangerous relationships and uh, getting into the sex trade, staying in abusive relationships. So understanding the type of homelessness or, or the type of housing precarity is really important for understanding what the solutions are going to look like. So to me, I so far I haven't seen one, I haven't heard one or read one platform where that is you know, really explained in detail because if you're gonna design policies, there is no one policy. There is one rule and I totally agree with Ilani, it's, Housing is a basic right. You can't deny people that. And then there's the question of affordability. And one of the things that's happened is I've, I've lived all over Canada uh, as I became a professor and I've done research everywhere. And, and what, what it costs to live in one place is not at all what it costs to live in another place. And even though the stories of individuals you might find living in literal homelessness are very interchangeable, the, the needs and the cost and the services that must be provided they vary from region to region. So we need to really understand what affordability means, for example, here in St. John, where there are no rent controls, where in the last two weeks, there have been stories, numerous stories of tenants who have been handed a thousand percent rent increases because landlords can do that. And it's been on the cover of all the, the different newspapers. So to me, I need some specificity. I, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to vote for, uh, just because all I see really in the platforms is I see them, finally admitting that they have to talk about homelessness, but I don't see them actually 
digging in and telling me what they're looking at. And I'd like to add just one more thing. I like housing first with supports. It works for some people. I did a, a video study in Chase for Seychelles Law at home when I was in Montreal. And it really worked for some people with the right supports. And I really believe in supportive housing. I also believe in supporting people who may not have that housing. But I think when, for example, when people mention housing first, they also picture one thing and it's, it can be many things. So I think I'm, I'm gonna give you this little quote before, just before I go. I think what FDR said in 1932 is, is important. I would say the country needs, and unless I mistake its temper, the country demands bold, persistent experimentation. It's common sense to take a method and try it. So I think that's actually where we're at. And I want to see these things tried, not talked about. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. I hope you don't go anywhere yet. We're not quite uh, done with you, but thank you for that. I, I love what you're saying about definitions. Quite often the definition of affordable gets thrown around. And the big question is affordable to who, right? The deeply right. affordable, if you look at uh, CMHC's definition of affordable, usually when we do, um, so my organization will do an application for that. We, you know, the units have to be 80% of market rent. Well, I mean, That's if your unit's $2,000, 80%, right? It's still uh, more than twice what someone on assistance would, would bring in, right? So definitions uh, definitely. Uh, Can I actually interject? I'm sorry to do this, but I just realized there was something I wanted to say about affordability. You see, if we understand what the number is, then we can also recognize how we can bring down the cost of other things that are associated with surviving and living. And so perhaps we can, you know, food insecurity, mental health insecurities, all these other types of things that cost money, um, you know, they say that in the United States, for example, and Canada, about 40% of the population, sorry, um, about 10% 10, 10 of the population is actually living somewhere around the poverty line. But they don't really talk about the other 30% that's right on the border. So if we can reduce some of the costs that aren't literally housing, that aren't rent, it might afford people opportunity to pay less of their income per month towards housing. So that's why we need to know what affordability really, what that monster actually looks like. Thanks Sorry. so much for that. No, no, that's great. That's that's, uh, that's a great piece to add. Now, this is another question for all three of you, and, and it's kind of fits with the whole definition there. While housing is in all three of the platforms, or all, sorry, not three, all the major platforms, they're talking about housing. We're not seeing the same attention on homelessness itself. Uh, from your different perspectives, how can parties do a better job of addressing this gap? Well, Andy, we'll start with you. We'll go to Zane and then finish with Eric. How could they? Well, to begin with, they could recognize, as I said before, the urgency of the situation, the size of the situation, especially in light of the country's overall wealth. I mean, look, we are a G7 country. We have one, the 10th largest GDP in the world, even during pandemic times. So the the unacceptability of homelessness should be front and center in all of the platforms. And 
I, you know, I find it always amazing the way politicians are so afraid of being modest and showing some humility. I mean, just like admit that there's a problem, it's significant, and that you, and you want to do something about it on an urgent basis. I think that's a vote getter, in my opinion. Most people don't want to live in a country where there are a lot of people living in abject poverty and homelessness when it's a wealthy country. I mean, most people find it um, disturbing and upsetting that Canada has fallen the way we have. And I mean, we used to be compared to the Nordic countries in, in Northern Europe. And I, you know, I've had the privilege of visiting some of those countries. And though they too have some homelessness problems, there is still a greater feeling of well-being on the streets of Sweden and Norway and certainly Finland where they're actually solving homelessness. And so, so, I mean, the parties need to just be honest about the big problems in this nation and homelessness is one of them. And I think I like what Eric said, they need to recognize there isn't gonna be a one size fits all solution here. They need to recognize who are our homeless people, who are who who's falling into homelessness. It has to dovetail with understandings of reconciliation. I mean, it it boggles the mind that that politicians would con would continue to be wedded to a shelter system that replicates the institutionalization of our indigenous peoples that is a complete trigger and trauma zone for most people, indigenous or not. I mean, the, the idea that we're, the, the fact that we're not seeing way more creativity, and I think Eric was speaking to this too, is surprising to me. The, so I'll sum, there should be more urgency, some recognition of humility and, and modesty and, and a desire to do something about this and linkages to reconciliation and human rights, of course, and no one size fits all approach. Yeah, from my perspective, I mean, I would agree with everything that's been said there. I, I think that summary was fantastic. Um, what I will say is, is just maybe add a couple of things. Number one, I think this is, this might sound elementary, but I think it's really important, especially to politicians and political parties that might not be domain experts, to tell them it's actually solvable. To tell them we have evidence-based policies that have been stress tested in communities that allow you, politician X, to be the champion of this thing. If you say you're gonna do it, wait wait for us we can help you solve it right and i think that's perhaps the most harrowing thing for folks uh in political positions is to say oh, ending it that sounds crazy that sounds like oh, how do we what like that's a bridge too far and then you look at it and you examine it further and you're like well we can't no if you commit to it you know we can be the parade and i say we the collective we, we i don't speak from the vote housing perspective i do certainly from that could be part of the parade but we can help you get there 
And I think that's part of it is to say in very clean and simple terms, it's solvable. In fact, the vote housing platform we released is called solvable for that very reason. You can guess who the audience for that platform is. Yes, it's folks within our campaign, but it's very much the political parties to say, hey, if you commit to this, here's a blueprint and here's a bunch of people that will help you support and make this thing happen. I think that that needs to be up front and center. The second thing I will add, in, in politics, there's a school of thought that says you can either try to fight for a specific definition, right? If, it, if definition of something is wrong or if something isn't there in a political party's agenda or platform, you can fight with them, scold them, and tell them why haven't you put it in there? Or you could do the alternative, which is to say, what is the story they are trying to tell? And how does your issue fit into their story? And I feel like for homelessness, it needs to be in the latter category, right? Which is what's great about this election, right? is that every party's talking about housing. That's actually awesome. In many ways, it might rise in terms of the first or second most important issue of this election. I'd ask us 30 days ago, did we think that was gonna happen? Like I did not. I did not think it would rise to the first couple of issues. I thought it would be dominated by debt, deficit, climate, bunch of other stuff, and then maybe housing. So, okay, now that they're talking about it, and I say they as the collective political parties, how do we then insert ending homelessness to the stories that they are telling? You know, I, there's been some really clever sort of work done on the housing spectrum, the downstream costs, what this means as a society, to Leilani's point about, in a country so wealthy, just from an identity perspective, should this be what's happening, right? So there's many points where we can insert our issue to the story that these political parties are trying to tell. Yes, that still includes a bit of browbeating, that still includes a bit of, hey, you don't get it yet. But there's really uh, the two simple things I'd add is number one, let's give them the proof that it's solvable and that there's a parade of folks that want to help them solve it. And number two, uh, let's find what story they're trying to tell about their candidacy, their future, their vision of Canada, and how we can insert ending homelessness into that. And maybe if I can make a final point, I'm sorry for, for going on too long. Um, it's just about advocacy in general. You know, one campaign doesn't solve an issue, but what one campaign can do uh, is is stimulate a group. It can create, you know, supporters who turn into campaigners who next time turn into advocates. And the people who are supporters that first time are then the campaigners. The, the advocates then turn into leaders. You're creating an ecosystem. You're creating a movement. And so what we're trying to do is, you know, keep the, the eye on the prize and to say, yes, some success this election, but there is something broader that we're collectively trying to build with vote housing and perhaps having all of the, the, the players and the voices at least rowing in the same direction, which as an outsider, and I can gleefully take that position, uh, I have not seen in, in in a long time, and I feel like you know, as a sector, we may be onto something in that in that particular regard. So I'll leave it there, kind of, with my comments. Can I just jump in with one more thing that I think works with what Zane was just saying? Maybe is that all right? Um, so one of the things I think needs to be talked about from if we're just talking about addressing homelessness and what the political parties could be saying, there I I, I love that this is solvable, 100%. I mean, it is a big problem in Canada. We have more than 235,000 people who are homeless in any given year in Canada. That's, that's a lot of people, but it's also not a lot of people, right? It's solvable. When you look at how many people are living in tents in cities across the, the, the country, it's solvable. I, I love that. And I, I think it actually is. So that's useful. But it's really solvable if three levels of government work together. Mm -hmm. And we live in this ridiculous, in my opinion, 
<clears throat> federalist state. I keep wanting to say federalism is dead. It's got to be dead because it doesn't work in the middle of a pandemic. We know that, right? You need all levels of government pitching in everywhere, et cetera. We don't see that enough. We, I don't see enough talk in the different platforms. I haven't seen any idea around an inter, you know, more intergovernmental cooperation, a new, I'd like to see, someone critiqued me for this, but I'm gonna put it out there anyway. I'd like to see an intergovernmental table, a new one specifically on homelessness and unaffordable housing, an intergovernmental table. The person who critiqued me said, well, we don't need more talk. Well, if anyone knows me, you know, while I do a lot of talking, it's always about action. And so the intergovernmental table would be about action. It wouldn't be about just talking and hashing things out. It would be forming new relationships, coming together around an urgent issue like uh, homelessness, um, urgent human rights issues like unaffordability, unaffordability of housing. So uh, none of the platforms talk about that intergovernmental aspect. And I, th I think that that's part of this, uh, if we're going to solve this. Shall I jump in? Please do. Well, you know, I'll tell you, one of the first essays I ever wrote back in the, in the 80s, not that I want to age myself, they were trying to figure out how to help India develop after it became an independent nation and one of the things they wanted to do was change the traditional way of thinking in many of these agrarian areas they wanted to think about development and housing and so the the, the slogan was transform people's needs and wants and the rest will follow so the way they did it was and this is a real summary of a long a book that i read was they they put a television a couple of they brought televisions to a couple of very important people's villages and everybody would gather to see these amazing Western technologies. And uh, they said, but how do you use it? And they said, well, you, you have to build hydro. You have to bring electricity. And so they did. And over the next 15 years, they adopted a far more, far more aggressive policies towards developing those regions that traditionally didn't develop these things. So transforming needs and wants and the rest will follow is something that I truly believe in. And I honestly think that it, I don't think it's just up to the, no, this, I don't disagree with anything I've heard. I totally agree. In fact, I'm looking at the, the three levels of government of the, the talking points put out by the Human Development Council here that explain, rationalize why the groups don't actually speak to each other or, why, or what the responsibilities of, of each level of government is in terms of housing and poverty reduction. It's kind of an excuse for not getting anything done. I'm looking at it as we speak. And one of the things that I think we need to recognize is it's not just government, it's my neighbors, it's, people I meet down the street, it's people who live in, in better neighborhoods. We have to transform people's understandings. I think one of the, and this has been a, a sort of undercurrent of all of my work is that at the beginning, when I talk about an issue, a social issue, I think about the, the nature of deserving and undeserving character and how in Canada, that's a really strong principle for some people. People, want, people who are generally opposed to progressive, uh, socially experimental, uh, solutions have a very narrow view of who deserves health and what and what issues are deserving of support. So I think that now that that housing precarity and it's like the opioid crisis now that it's it's not restricted to these so-called marginal groups now that it's become so mainstream people are seeing that this is a far more deserving issue and I think what we really need to do uh, is continue this lived experience scholarship the kind of work that uh, is, is being done really well now in Canada to show that it's this is what this is what homelessness looks like this is what it looks like to my four-year-old child and my my eldest who can't get a job and is now living in in a, in a terrible relationship but people could see 
that the people who were suffering from homelessness, the different kinds of homelessness, have real character and, and what their nature is like. I think the voters themselves have a much stronger role to play than simply the government's platforms. So I think that's really, really important. And I think another issue for us is greed. You know, with great wealth, this is the other thing that happened in India. They brought greed into places where it hadn't existed before. Now, this is this is just one person's dissertation on what happened to economic development in India. So I'm I'm not, uh, I'm not, I don't want to be quoted on it, but what I'm saying is with, with that, with wealth comes the ex expectation of more wealth and more progress. And so I agree with all of Ilani's work on, on financialization, because that's the way that we've been able to commodify space. It's one of the few things left in Canada where people can make obscene amounts of wealth from. And once people start making that wealth, it's hard to convince them to make a little less wealth. When I think all of us would agree that developers, not just the government, but developers have a major role to play if we're going to build housing that people can afford. And I think that is, I think we really need to drive on that policy piece. I think we really need to make it so that they, they're building social units, so that they're building um, uh, mixed market units, you know, so that we're not creating ghettos and we're not, in other words, we can't take the developers and the landlords out of this. Uh, they have to take an active role. I, I don't believe it when, it, I, when I meet a developer who says, if you charge me 10% on top of my building costs, well, I'm just not going to build the building. I've never met a developer who meant that. You know, they're, 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 there's such a great markup for developers and that some developer will take that land and will develop it. So I think governments have a responsibility to push that piece so that there's a responsibility to build the social part. Sorry, I get a little angry when I when I talk about that because to me it's just I've been hearing it for thirty years and it doesn't change, and it needs to. Yeah, I I love it, Eric, as as someone who lives in Vancouver and has lived in right. other various cities in the Lower Mainland and covered um, developments when I was a reporter. I I understand <laughs> the frustration all too well. Um, you know, and as as we come to sort of wrap this up, I really wanted to leave our listeners um, with with some advice. Um, what I love about this is the three of you are all very much connected to this sector. Um, and, but you all come at it from different avenues. So, you know, with that in mind, what advice or considerations would you like to share for the voters who haven't cast their ballot yet with the election uh, around the corner on Monday, September 20th? And Zane, let's start with you. Uh, there's going to be a lot of noise this election. There's already been a lot of noise this election, right? Uh, with wedge issues, you probably heard that on the news. Uh, you're probably hearing about different sort of opportunistic angles. Uh, let my my advice to you would be: let's focus on the issues that that matter. Um, view this election through the prism of the issues that matter. Um, our campaign is called Vote Housing for a specific reason, and that that reason is that view this election through the prism of of housing. If that is an issue that you care about. Um, we are putting out survey responses from each of the parties. We're putting out a platform analysis. We're going to present you the information. We're not going to tell you how to vote, but we're going to present to you the information. And if this is the prism you want to vote with, we're going to try to give you that information to make that decision. Um, we show strength uh, by each one of us voting, each one of us vote verbalizing and, and vocalizing our support. Um, and, and the best way to do that is to showcase that you are part of a broader coalition uh, viewing that through this particular lens. So we're gonna leave you with the evidence, so to speak, and the research to be able to make that decision, uh, but don't fall for the noise, don't fall for the traps, don't fall for what others want you to think this election's about. 
fall for what the parties are going to do, because rarely does a 36 day pressure cooker actually uh, is, is actually a conversation about the future. It isn't. And this one is no different. This election is a conversation about what's uh, opportunistic at the time. Don't let that be the noise to the signal of the issues that matter. Um, We're going to try to help you, especially if housing is your issue uh, in that regard. Can I jump in? Oh, Oh, yeah. No, go ahead. No, no. no. Go ahead, Lee. Yeah, Eric, if you want to jump in. I was simply going to say that I I only have my students for two classes before this election. I was kind of hoping to have them for four or five weeks to sort of transform their needs and wants. I mean, literally, that's the first thing I put on the board when I teach my classes. Uh, I just think that um, I think that the party that does exactly um, what Leilani mentioned has a little humility, says, look, this is what we can do and what we're going to do. I, I don't want I don't I don't want to be. I don't want to vote for, um, I don't know, was it Gandalf the Grey? He's going to solve everything with the wave of a wand because I know that that can't help him. I'm willing to wait while actual concrete steps are taken. And so if I see somebody who prior, prior, prioritizes the needs of the most needy first and says they're going to take care of that, that's probably somebody that I'm going to vote for. The other problem for me is that people who think that way where I live aren't really represented. So it's there's this strategic voting thing that gets in the way. So I'm, I, my feeling is that I want to vote for, uh, for a, a leader that isn't touting something that's new to their party. I want to vote for a leader that's touting something that's from part of a party's perspective historically and has some very concrete ideas about how they're going to achieve these goals. I really hate giving advice. <laughs> So, uh, all I can say is, um, I think voters should be asking themselves, you know, what kind of a city, town, village do I want to live in? And what values um, do I want to see reflected where I live? And then from there, determine which party's values mesh and um, you know, which party is most likely to be able to get to the values that they espouse. That being said, I also hope that voters, and it's so hard in this day and age, and we're seeing that with, with some of the movements that are on our streets in Canada right now, it's really hard to think about other people. We live in a me, myself, and I economy the iPhone being so emblematic. Um, So the me, myself and I economy, me, myself and I community makes it really difficult to start thinking about other people. But I guess that's what I would ask voters to think about sort of how do I, how do I vote in a way that makes this country really great for as many people as possible? Listen, for someone who doesn't like to give out advice, that is very sound advice. Um, We want to know where people can go to see, uh, get more information on what you're all working on. We'll go Eric, Lelani, and Zane to take us home. Uh, By the way, Lelani, I agree with with Michael. I was just going to say that I'm taking your advice. (laughs) Um, uh, So for me, uh, the best way to access what what I'm doing is through the University of New Brunswick. 
St. John website, just use my bio, Eric Wiseman, or I have a, a website under, under development, which is ericpaulwiseman.com. And you can see my films um, on subtext, sorry, on, uh, on YouTube. Just Google my name, Eric Wiseman, and then the word subtext, and they come up. Yeah, so my work is available on maketheshift.org. Um, follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. Recently, I've been getting pretty crotchety. So don't tell me that supply is the answer to all housing woes. If, if one more, excuse me with due respect, white man tells me that supply is the answer to all of our housing woes, I may just have to find a new job. Um, but Twitter is a good way to, to reach me. And uh, I have my own podcast with um, the director of Push the Film, Frederick Gerton, and it's called Pushback Talks. We drop, generally we drop weekly. We're taking a one week break, uh, but we drop on Wednesdays and you can just find us wherever you download your podcasts. Uh, votehousing.ca, that's what I want to plug, uh, of course, as a campaign in the next couple of weeks. I don't know when this will be put online, so I'll make sure that uh, that if we are still in the midst of the campaign, uh, that is really where all the energy is going. And then on Twitter at Zane Velge also, um, you know, maybe at your nearest dentist's office on CBC when you're when you're getting a root canal, or if you're flying on an airplane, you might see me in the Air Canada lounge on your screen just pontificating about something. Uh, but, but for now, I think votehousing.ca is the central point I'd like to have everyone's attentions and, and, and eyeballs uh, kind of go into. I'm waiting for my t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> They're great t-shirts. I can't wait for it. Uh, me too, actually. And I'm also very excited about the t-shirt, but I'm sure by the time this podcast drops, we will have received them. Um, and yeah, this has been a really incredible conversation. Again, exceeding expectations that I possibly could have had. Um, I really feel like this was a this was a particularly interesting one, given, again, sort of the different um, avenues everyone comes to this work. Um, but I think it's really helpful to have sort of meaningful conversations that way. So I just want to say thank you all so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much. Super thank fun. Thank you. My dog says thank you. He's wagging his tail. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, Steph, you, you've, you've done it again. Another <laughs> great group of people, great individuals. We're talking about things about accountability, asking the right questions. Um, and man, just get out and have your voice heard. This is the time to do it. Um, you've got great information from this podcast. No more excuses. Let's get out there and ask the right questions and push people to be accountable. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we were talking about, or as encampments came up in the beginning, I was just like, man, we really need to get a podcast series now that we're wrapped. This selection series is almost on the way out. I would love to talk about encampments and, you know, because I, I too, I've traveled to Dignity Village um, and, and those in Portland when I was back working with the Tai on a homelessness solution series and positing encampments as, as kind of a controversial solution in at least not tearing them down. Um, so we'd love to do that. But if you've listened this far all the way to the end um, of this, I really uh, just encourage you to vote. Um, drown out the noise, do your own research. Hopefully this advice and considerations are helpful, but just go and vote if you haven't already. And that we will end on that sage advice. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us on On The Way Home. We'll see you next time.
I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.